just a few minutes, we'll uh, be looking at the uh, book of 2 Peter, and we get to start chapter 2 this morning, so 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning, if you'd like to, to find your way there in, in your Bible, or using the Bible app, we, we have the notes in there in the Bible app, um, as well as on our website, um, so uh, however it is that you, you want to find that scripture this morning, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is what we will be looking at in just a few minutes. If I uh, were to tell you to imagine something that was cruel, you perhaps would think of someone torturing puppies or kittens or something like that. Or maybe, maybe you would think of a terrorist blowing up a building or some other form of cruelty. But I am doubtful that... Many people would think of heresy or false doctrine as being cruel. However, in reality, heresy is cruel because it destroys lives for time and eternity. John MacArthur writes this, Nothing is more wicked than for someone to claim to speak for God to the salvation of souls when in reality he speaks for Satan to the damnation of souls. Those who promote heresy are cruel in that they deceive people into following a path that leads to the eternal terrors of hell. Remember at the end of chapter 1, Peter has laid out the foundation of our faith, which is the inspired word of God. Uh, Peter knows that he is about to die, and he wants his readers to stand firm on the foundation of God's word. Peter also knows that False prophets are a perpetual threat to the people of God. And so Peter gives a contrast here at the beginning of chapter 2. He's contrasting these godly prophets that were moved by the Holy Spirit with false prophets who have been a plague on the people through the ages. And some people think that, that uh, Peter's use of the future tense uh, in this text means that the false teachers were not yet there. They were not yet present. However, later on in verses uh, 13 and verse 15 and verse 17 and then in chapter 3 and verse 5, Peter indicates that indeed these false teachers are already there. By using the future tense, Peter probably is alluding to these prophecies by, uh, by which Jesus pointed to these false teachers that were coming. The Lord knew that they would come. But their presence does not negate his sovereign control over his church. Interestingly, in reading Second uh, Peter chapter 2, we do not find any direct exhortation or commands. Rather, Peter just describes these false teachers for us. And, and uh, he describes their evil at length. It's like Peter is holding up a, a most wanted poster, right? And... And on that poster is some hideous, evil-looking character. And Peter's saying, this is what these guys look like, just so you know. So watch out for these guys. And so chapter 2 serves as this warning um, for us in our, in our text so that we know what these false teachers look like so that we, as followers of Christ, can spot false teaching and false teachers instead of embracing them and embracing false teaching. 
So I would ask uh, after that, uh, let's, let's read this text. If you're willing and able, let's uh, stand and we'll read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning and penetrate our hearts and lives. Speak to us, Lord. I pray that as we, as we look into your word and as we hear the proclamation of your word, that if there's areas in our life, maybe where we're embracing false teaching, that you would reveal that and that we would weed that out of our lives. And for those that, that maybe are listening or will listen that don't know Christ as their Savior, I pray that that would be revealed to their heart this morning. They come to know Christ as their, as their Lord and Savior. Thank you for all the blessings you give to us. May your word speak to us this morning. For your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What I believe Peter is writing here is that we need to be aware of false teachers because they will leave a trail of spiritual devastation. And Peter gives us seven reasons that we should be aware. And, and what I'm saying is this is how that we can spot a false teacher. First notice that false teachers are a constant threat to God's people. False teachers are a constant threat to God's people. Just look at what Peter says here in verse 1. But false prophets also uh, arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. The first phrase is this reference uh, back to the history of God's people. And, and in the Old Testament, remember what Scripture says about Satan, that he's a liar and the father of lies. He's, he's, uh, he's, deceived, he's a deceiver. He deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he has been using false teachers to deceive unsuspecting people ever since. Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses warned Israel about false prophets who would deceive by performing signs and wonders to get people to go after false gods. Moses sees this as a, a vile threat. He says, even if it is your brother, your child, or even your wife that you cherish, you are not to follow after these false gods. Instead, you should have pity on them Expose them so that they're put to death. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 10. Now that, that seems extreme because, to be honest, we're so tolerant in our culture of all kinds of false doctrines, so, so we just shrug it off. That's eh, no big deal. Moses knew that false teachers would infect many people causing irreparable damage to God's people. He knew that. It was a big deal. 
Peter says these false teachers will be among you. And that's significant. Paul warned the elders in the, at the church of Ephesus of the exact same thing in Acts chapter 20. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce, wool, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul goes on to warn them to, to be alert. False teachers arise from within the church and often do a lot of damage before they ever get confronted in the church. If they ever are confronted. And then if they leave, guess what happens? Well, a lot of people go with them. They're angry. How could the church be so judgmental and be so unloving? And I can't believe that the church could do such a thing and, and actually confront a false teacher. And while it's true that Christians have wrongly divided over minor doctrinal disputes, personality conflicts, and other petty little issues... And those divisions are indeed sinful. However, it is equally as sinful to minimize doctrine to the point where we tolerate false teachings within the church who deny the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith in the name of love and unity so we don't confront them. These foundational truths include the triune nature of God, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, the bodily resurrection and ascension, and, and his personal return. All those are fundamental truths to the Christian faith. We also can't waver on, on the essentials of the gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Underlying all these truths is the truth of divine inspiration, authority, and the complete infallibility of the Bible. All these are essential to the Christian faith. Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote in the 19th century. In his book, Warnings to Churches, this is what he says. Controversy in religion is a hateful thing. It is hard enough to fight the devil, the world, and the flesh without private differences in our own camp. But there is one thing which is worse than controversy, and that is false doctrine tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest. Three things that are which men ever ought to trifle with. A little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. Listen to me carefully. Just because someone claims to be an evangelical pastor, or even a Baptist pastor, or even a Southern Baptist pastor, or even an evangelist, that does not mean that they are sound in the faith. False teachers have always risen from within the church. We must be aware. We must be aware of false teaching. Secondly, I want us to notice that false teachers are insidious and deceptive. False teachers are insidious and deceptive. I just kind of wanted to use the word insidious, to be honest with you. But anyway, uh, they're insidious and deceptive. Look what, look what Peter says about these false teachers in verse 1. That they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Right? And then in verse 3, they will use false words. Something that perhaps you may not know is that we get our word plastic 
from the Greek word for false, in that made up or fabricated. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 16, uh, these false teachers are accusing Peter and the apostles of following these cleverly devised myths. But Peter counters it by saying uh, that, that they're making up their own stories and doctrines in contrast to the inspired prophets and the apostles who wrote down God's revealed truth in his word. These false teachers were tools of Satan to promote deception. When it says that they will secretly bring in, it means that they're bringing in from the outside. Now, I might get myself in a little trouble here, but, but uh, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about adding worldly concepts to the Bible and then giving those worldly concepts the same authority as Scripture. That's exactly what this verse is talking about. It says you're taking worldly concepts and you're bringing them and applying them to the Bible and then you're elevating that to put it on the same authority as Scripture. And you're saying this concept from the world holds just as much water, opinion, authority as the Bible. That's what Peter's talking about. And so what it's saying is that, that we, we are not to take these worldly ideals from the world, these concepts, and apply them to the church as if they are from Scripture. You see the problem? This is all around us. It's in churches all around us that we take these concepts from the world and say, okay, we're going to apply that to our church. We, we see this in simple things like, like, you know, improving your self-esteem. You can search the Bible front to back and you'll never find any verses that encourage you to build your self-esteem. Granted, some people want to use a proof text and say that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And they will say that you have to love, your, love yourself before you can properly love your neighbor. And that sounds great, but that's pulling the verse out of context. In context, we see that there are two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Why? Because love of self is assumed. We all love ourselves. It's a minimal standard. We, we, everybody eats in here. Okay? You love yourself. You take care of yourself. You're always taking care of yourself. You don't have to be told to love yourself. You just love yourself. And if, in fact, we would indeed love our neighbor as much as we surely love ourselves, we would then fulfill the command. That's what it's talking about. False teachers are often great at using Scripture, but they twist it. They bring in teaching from the outside to pervert the true meaning of Scripture. Rarely are false teachers upfront about their agenda. Instead, they cleverly work in a little bit of air here, a little bit of air there, until they have eventually taken people into a complete denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul gave a warning. That Satan disguises himself as this angel of light. And so his servants will also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We see this all through scripture. People proclaiming false doctrine, false teaching, but proclaiming it in righteousness. Don't we even see this in Judas, right? You remember that, that the, the, the alabaster... Um, the perfume is broken over the feet of Jesus. And what does Judas say? So he sounds super righteous. All that money could have been sold and given to the poor. Sounds great. 
Sounds like something that maybe somebody would say today. Oh, what a waste of money. We could have sold that and gave that money to the poor. Judas had no, he had no intention of giving anything to the poor. And John exposes him, right, just a few verses later. Because he says, he said this because he was the keeper of the box. Meaning Judas was the treasurer. And that's why he said it. It had nothing to do with giving to the poor. But it sounded good. It sounded righteous. That's what false teachers do. They take us in this wrong direction until before we know it, we're denying the gospel entirely. And they're deceiving you. They don't, they don't put it out in the open. They use deception to gain followers. Thirdly, False teachers have a destructive doctrine. Peter calls her doctrine, uh, calls her teaching destructive heresies. The word heresy was originally a neutral term. It referred to a school of thought or teaching at all. It can also refer to factions and divisions within, the, uh, within a church. However, Peter added the word destructive. Peter's making it clear that he is talking about, about a seriously wrong doctrine that destroys lives and churches and if it's left unchecked, it will lead to eternal judgment. Peter exposes the root cause of their destructive heresies because he adds this, right? Even denying the master who bought them. Master, that's a strong word for, for sovereign or owner. It is, it is where we get our word despot. However, in the New Testament times, it did not have this negative connotation uh, that the English word despot has. It was used for an earthly master of slaves or to emphasize God's absolute lordship. And that, that's, what, that's what Peter's talking about. And here and in Jude 4, it refers to Jesus Christ. These false teachers were denying from their teaching and from their lifestyle that the lordship of Jesus Christ was even, was even a real thing. That he was the rightful owner of his people. If someone makes the claim that you can believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and not submit to him as Lord, it's a destructive doctrine. And yet churches are riddled with pastors that make such claims. They stand in pulpits and they preach the, the supposed word of God and say, well, you can come to Christ, and, and, but he doesn't have to be the Lord of your life. And it deceives people into thinking that they're saved. Why? Well, because they accepted Christ. Christ doesn't need our acceptance, folks. It says that he will say to these people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They will be damned because their lives denied the master who bought them. But that whole, that whole phrase that sends us into the world of theological controversy. Because some people will argue that it supports the fact that you can lose your salvation because they deny their master who bought them. But many scriptures affirm that God keeps all he saves. In other words, our salvation is not dependent on us to keep it. If it was, we would lose it every time. Remember, Peter himself had denied the master who bought him Yet the Lord didn't cast him off. There are others that will use this phrase to say that, that Christ died for all people. And if we say that Christ died for all people, then we're saying that he also died for those who reject him. And so we're, we're saying that the, the master died for these heretics 
who end up in eternal damnation. In other words, the verse seems to teach what is known as unlimited atonement. Now, I could take an entire message to deal with the extent of the atonement. I'm not going to, to get into all that here. There are many books that are written on the subject. I do, uh, I do want to try to clarify some things and see if I can help us understand a little bit better. Now, there are many people who believe something like this, okay? It goes like this. Christ died to pay the penalty for all people, but the benefits of his death only apply to those who trust in him as Savior and Lord. In other words, Christ's death made salvation possible for everyone, but in actuality only for those who believe. And so it's like, uh, it's like someone's bought you a gift, right? So we hear this illustration all the time. Someone's bought you a gift. They're offering you the gift. But in order for you to, to have that gift, you have to receive it. And that's the most common view among evangelicals today. And, and uh, that's the view that you'll hear preached and taught in so many churches today. It's my belief that it's an inadequate view of the atonement. Let me try to explain this using um, the Puritan John Owen's uh, words. In the death of death, in the death of Christ. In that book, Owen points out that either Christ endured the wrath of God for all the sins of all men, or all the sins of some men, or some sins of all men. It's got to be one of those. If Christ died for all of the sins of all men, then all men, everybody would be saved. That's clearly not taught in the Bible. Now, some will counter, but Christ died for all the sins of all men, except for the sin of unbelief. Men are lost because they don't believe in Christ. Owen counters that with this view uh, of unbelief. He says, is this sin or not? If not, why would sinners be punished for it? If it is somehow not atoned for by the blood of Christ, where does Scripture ever teach this? And there are many Scriptures that say that people will be judged for many of their sins. Revelation 20, 12, Revelation 20, 13, Revelation 21, 8. Why would God judge them for these sins if, they were, uh, if, if, if he was going to judge them for all sins except for the sin of unbelief? Why would just all these other sins be atoned for, but not that sin? So we throw that one. If Christ died for some of the sins of all men, the sin of unbelief in Christ being except, uh, the exception, then all men have some sin to atone for. And therefore, no one could be saved. This leaves only one possible option, being Christ died for all of the sins of some men, namely his elect. As Matthew 121 puts it, Christ came to save his people, not all people, his people, the elect from their sins, or as John puts it in John 6, 39 and 40, Christ came to secure the eternal redemption of all those that the Father gave to him. In other words, the death of Christ actually paid their penalty. It actually was a cost. It actually paid for what it was supposed to pay for. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit quickens the elect sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life. They believe in Christ, and Christ's saving work is then applied to their soul. I don't have time to get into uh, the verses that seem to indicate that Christ dies. Uh, Christ's death is even for those who are eventually lost. 
I will say this, that James Boyce and Philip Ryken in their book, The Doctrines of Grace, give this brief treatment of it in pages 126 to 134 if you ever want to go look it up. Let me try to explain why Peter says these unbelieving heretics denied the master who bought them. What Peter is doing is making a comparison between the situation in Israel, the false prophets who arose among the people, and the early church. There will be false teachers among them. In context, a warning of Israel about false teachers, Moses describes God as the Lord your God who bought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Later, Moses rebukes the people. He calls them a perverse and crooked generation by rhetorically asking them this, Is not he your father who has bought you? In other words, in the Old Testament, the Exodus is a reference uh, to God redeeming or buying his people. Did everybody in the Exodus, were they all saved? Nope. There's only a remnant among them who are truly saved. The language of a redemption was applied to the entire nation, but the entire nation's not saved. Not all of them are what we would call born again. So now Peter takes that same analogy, right, and he applies it to the church. Just as Israel as a nation is, is a redeemed people of God, and not all are saved, so the church is now God's redeemed nation. He tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, if you remember. Yet there are some among the church who are not truly saved. They profess to be redeemed, but their deeds deny him. Titus 1.16 tells us that. And so Peter here is not giving this theological treatment on the extent of the atonement. Instead, he uses this analogy of God's people being, brought, uh, being bought by their master to show the heinous nature of the false teacher's sin. They associated with the chosen nation. They come into the church and they say, oh, I'm part of the church. The master bought the church just as God bought or redeemed Israel through the exodus. Yet these heretics, they don't obey him. They say, well, well, well we're part of the church. But they deny the master who bought them. And the result for them and all that follow them will be a swift destruction. And so we must beware because false teachers are a constant threat to God's people. Their methods are insidious and deceptive. And their false doctrine is destructive. Fourthly, notice this. False teachers have an enticing influence. They have an enticing influence. He says in, in um, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. They had a large following. They, they were what we would call successful. We'd look at them and be like, in today's standards, we'd be like, oh, well, they're successful. It's amazing to me that the Christian world thinks that if a man has a huge following, he has to be sound in the faith. If they have a mega church, the Christian world looks to them as a leader without questioning anything that they teach. Oh, well, look how large their church is. They've got to be doing something right. These false teachers invariably cater to the flesh. They don't preach against sin. They don't mention divine judgment or hell. They avoid truth like, like uh, truths like denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ no matter the cost. What they do instead is try to soothe people with their uplifting thoughts. Let me just give you some uplifting thoughts. Just cast some your way. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And people like you. Uplifting thoughts. God loves you. He has a plan for you. And he wants your best life now. Uplifting thoughts. If you don't believe me, 
Just look up the Joel Osteen Inspiration Cube. Amen. Over 400 uplifting messages and 31 positive affirmations. This is what it says. That you can declare over your life. It's real. That's a real thing. I'm not making this up. It's a little cube. You press it. And Joel comes on there and he gives you uplifting thoughts. And you can, you can declare these things over your life. I bet the death of Christ is not mentioned on the inspiration cube. Or if it is, or if it's ever preached in those kinds of churches, it's only because Christ dies for you because he believed that you are of such great worth. Now you just need to believe in yourself. And you ask God to help you fulfill your dreams, and you will. And people follow that teaching. By the droves. Why? Because it feeds their pride. It sounds so good. I can, I can pat myself on the back and I can talk about how good I am, how great I am, how positive I am. And if I just take positive thoughts, my life will be great. I don't ever have to worry about anything. Fifthly, we notice this. False teachers have impure motives. Peter reveals to us that these men are driven by two motives, and they're related, sensuality and greed. At the root of both of these motives is self-centered pride. They want to exploit their followers into, in order to gratify their, themselves. There's always a connection between false doctrine and impure living. Sometimes it's hard to figure it out at first, which, which came first. But invariably, they're connected together. False doctrine leads to ungodly living, but the reverse is also true. If a man gets involved in sexual sin and the Bible convicts him, so he has to change the teaching of the Bible to satisfy his guilty conscience. He has to satisfy that somehow. And I've seen this happen over and over again. In fact, this just happened to, uh, to the pastor of Hillsong Church. Right? Carl Lentz, famous dude. Supposedly, you know, Justin Bieber came to his church and Justin Bieber um, came to know Christ uh, because of Carl Lentz. And Justin said that Carl Lentz, his pastor, was like a father figure to him. And guess what happens? He becomes all famous and he was already famous, but now he's super famous and this, that, and the other. And then it comes out that he has uh, several immoral failures. we got to satisfy our conscience. So we got to start twisting scripture. I've listened to people in ministry try to justify pornography, drunkenness, all kinds of sin. So often people that start cults are those who start off orthodox and they erode into trying to justify their sinful practices through, uh, through scripture and they start a cult. Wrong behavior leads to wrong doctrine. Wrong doctrine will lead to wrong behavior. It's just the way it is. Sixthly, notice this. False teachers slander the truth. Verse 2. Peter says, because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. The Christian faith is the way of truth because Jesus himself declared, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life in John chapter 14, verse 6. But when professing Christians, and especially professing Christian leaders, do not live according to the truth of God's word, and instead live according to their own truth or the truth of the world, then unbelievers will mock and disregard the truth. 
So the TV preacher that lives the, the lavish lifestyle, they're constantly milking their audience for more money. And, and the well-known pastors who get exposed in these sex scandals cause the world to scoff at the faith. They go, why would I want anything like that? I mean, they're living no different than me. What's important to them is the almighty dollar. That's what's important to me. They want to live the way they want. I want to live the way I want. Why would I want to, to, to practice the, the faith? See, false teachers slandered the truth, not only with their words, but with their life. We must stay clear of them. Next, all who follow these false teachers. Seventhly, all who follow these false teachers are heading for eternal destruction. Five of the 18 times that the word destruction appears in the New Testament, they're used by Peter. In verse 1, he used the term destructive heresies, swift destruction which the false teachers will bring on themselves. In verse 3, Peter adds, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not sleep. He also uses the word again in chapter 3, verse 7 in reference to the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And again in chapter 3, verse 17, where he says that the false teachers twist the scriptures to their own destruction. He also uses the verb in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, to describe how God destroyed the world through the flood. Contrary to what some people teach, the destruction of the wicked is not a reference to their annihilation. Instead, it refers to the eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 46, Revelation 17, 8. Revelation 17, 11, Revelation 20, 14, and 15, Revelation 21, 8, to all talk about their eternal punishment in the lake of fire. The fact that these wicked men's judgment is from long ago means that God declared judgment on false teachers in the Old Testament centuries before. The idea that their destruction is not asleep makes destruction a personification of an executioner, always ready to administer God's sentence on those who teach false doctrine. Again, I want to be clear that, that Peter's not talking about these minor doctrinal differences here. That's not what Peter is talking about. Instead, he's talking about false teaching that leads people to damnation. And it seems that, that Peter doesn't hold out any hope for these, these false teachers. That they could be reclaimed for truth. And this is a writing to warn us, to, to reveal to us how to spot a false teacher so we would listen to what teachers are proclaiming and not be taken in by their destructive doctrines. Do you see why it's so wicked? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are being led to hell every single Sunday by false teachers that stand in pulpits and proclaim a false gospel. They abound today. We don't have to look far. They're on television. They write books. They hold major events. They pastor mega churches. When I was a student pastor living in Pennsylvania, everyone was talking about this guy named Rob Bell. Buying his books. Everybody's watching his videos. Oh, you got to see this. You got to see this, Pastor Josh. This video is, is so good. 
I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just see what this guy's all about. I watched one video one time. In that video, that particular video, um, he's talking about Peter on the boat. And he talks about how, how Peter steps out of the boat and he begins to sink. We all, we all know the account of, of Peter stepping out of the boat and, and walking to Christ. And he's talking about this and, and it sounds good. I mean, the teaching, he, he sounds good. And then he, he makes a statement. Peter didn't sink because he lost faith in Christ. He sank because he lost faith in himself. And I was like, let me rewind this. I had, I had people that I respected. To, oh, you got to listen to this guy. You got to, this guy right here, oh man. I wasn't very popular when I would confront these kinds of teachings and say, this is garbage. Why are you listening to this? I would never use these videos in my youth ministry. This is, this is insane. And all these people get upset with me because I question what he was teaching, what he was writing about. Later, things begin to come out. And then it's discovered that he's a false teacher and he writes this book called Love Wins. Love Win. Some of you may be familiar with it. I don't know. Sounds good. I mean, that title, Love Wins, everybody, everybody wants to read that. In the book, he basically says hell doesn't exist and everybody goes to heaven. And there's still people that, that say, oh yeah, that's good stuff. False teachers. I mean, how many people are following these kinds of false teachings? Led straight to hell. They're following it by the droves. Do you understand why it's so important? This is why I spent hours upon hours studying God's word. Because how dare me stand in this pulpit and proclaim something that is not true. That one person might be confused and be led to hell from my teaching. We can spot false teachers. But we can't spot them if we don't know the truth. And so I ask you this morning, do you know the truth? Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Because if you don't know him, then you will most certainly be led astray. But you can place your trust in Christ today. And you can, you say, well, how do I do that? You can pray something like this. I go over this every week. I, I do this primarily because I know we have people that tune in and they watch us on YouTube and everything else because they tell me. And, and you can do it like this. Dear, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sins. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not magic. Christ saves you. And if you call upon him as an expression of your trust in him to save you, 
Recognizing that you're a sinner and that you need his salvation. If you said a prayer or something like that or you want to know more, please let us follow up with you. You can come forward in the service. You can, you can if you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. It'll follow up with you. If that doesn't work, send me a, a text message through there. I will follow up with you, whatever it is. <coughs> you can even do that in your pew if you want to. Finally, let me ask you this. Do you know your Bible well enough to spot a false teacher? Would you be able to help a friend who comes to you like I had and said, hey, you've got to check out this teaching. This is good stuff. Would you be able to say, that's wrong? False teaching is cruel because it's leading people to eternal destruction. And this is why we need to know the truth. And we must confront false teaching every time we see it. False teaching is not neutral. It's not a minor deviation. It is evil to its very core. So beware of false teaching. Don't be sucked in by it. Know it so that you can battle against it. Let's close the prayer. <coughs> well, I thank you for your word this morning. God, that we would hear your truth. We'd apply that to our hearts and to our lives. Lord, not so that we can, we can somehow be arrogant with the truth, that we can somehow pretend like we know more than someone else. God, we have the truth that gives eternal life to the lost. Forgive us when we've hidden it, when we've bottled it up, we've not spoken out. Forgive us, Lord, when we've been confronted with false teaching right in front of us and we don't do anything about it. We don't speak up. We don't say that's not right. Forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, if, if I've ever allowed false teaching in front of me and to which someone else maybe listened to that and, and was led astray by it. Bring conviction to our heart. Help us to take your word seriously so we'd live it out, Lord, in our church, in our life. Help us to never take the things of the world, the standards of the world, and place them in our church and elevate that to the level of Scripture as we read about. But help us to firmly stand on the word of your truth and say, I will follow it no matter what. And that we proclaim it. And so, Lord, I pray that if you've spoken to someone this morning, if they need to pray in their pew or they need to come forward or whatever they might need to do, God, I pray that we respond this morning to your word to the proclamation of your word and for those that maybe listen to this at some point maybe they're not saved maybe they don't know Christ as their savior I pray that when they hear your word that their heart would be convicted and that they would come to know Christ as their savior may we respond and however you lead I pray this in Jesus name 
Amen. As we sing, you be one.